So turn again with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And our text today is verse 19. We're just going to focus in on the last phrase of verse 19. That little uh, depiction that's given there of the saints of God where they're denoted as being the household of God. The household of God. As you read through the New Testament scriptures, you'll find many wonderful word pictures, metaphors that are used to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're all very instructive, and I think none more so than this one in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. Under divine inspiration, Paul takes the church and he describes it as being the household of God. That's further expanded upon in chapter 3 and verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, where he talks about the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It's wonderful today to think that we have a family. And they're not all on earth. There's so many of them already in heaven. The whole family of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and in earth. This concept of family, of course, takes us right back to the very dawn of creation and the story, the history of Adam and Eve. When God created Adam and Eve, we read in Genesis 2 verse 18, the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me. And thus Eve was created and God brought Eve to Adam and he coupled them together as one. Psalm 68 and verse 6 tells us that God setteth the solitary in families to build a house out of them. So it's a mercy that God didn't create us, brethren and sisters, to journey through life on our own. We would be very lonely individuals if each one of us were called to live just separate, individual, little units in our own lives. We would be isolated, we'd be lonely. I think we'd be most miserable. But rather God in his grace placed us in our biological families, in our nuclear families, or in our adoptive or in our foster families. Because that family is all important in the mind of God and where the devil can succeed in undermining the family he can undermine the whole fabric not only of the church but of society itself because the family is the basic building block of all civil society and it's so highly regarded the family that the bible takes this designation in Ephesians 2 and verse 19, this family, this household of God, to describe the church. To me, that's something wonderful. God in grace, he takes the solitary sinner, the stranger, and he takes them and he places them into his family. And when the Bible speaks of believers, they're never spoken of as, as it were, Isolated individuals. They're always spoken together in the collective. As, uh, in the corporate church family. Sometimes we, we like today to see ourselves as really unique individuals. And yes I know we all have our own DNA. But that DNA is something. Is part of something that's bigger and greater than our own selves. For we're part of God's family. We're part of the household of God. I'd like to stop with you today and consider this great truth. 
I want you to see today how our own individuality is coupled together as Adam and Eve were coupled together with the corporate body of Christ to make us into the family, the household of God. As we understand what the family is, then we'll understand, I think, more and more. I think it's good on this Mother's Sunday to understand about families. But it's even better in in, uh, subsequent Sundays and throughout the rest of the year to understand our part in the family of God. What's our part in the family of God? History's everything, isn't it? I hope you come back tonight to hear the history of the church in Ireland. It's all shrouded and clouded, of course, in a lot of of, uh, Romanism and mysticism. But I know our brother McIntyre will take us back to the true history of the Celtic church. But the history of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ goes further back than St. Patrick. And I want to speak to you firstly today about the antiquity of the household of the family of God. There are many today, and of course they spend a lot of time and they spend a lot of money researching their family tree. And they trace back their ancestors and they claim by so doing that they're better able to understand their own identity. I'm not sure that's the case. It's something that I, I would like to do in the future. I don't know what's away in the hidden background there in the Harris family tree, but I would like to find out. But I'm sure it will not change who I am in the present tense. As a young minister, I, I was greatly influenced by one book I would commend it to you, R.B. Kuyper's book on the glorious body of Christ. And in that book, he not only talks about the antiquity of the church, he talks about the perpetuity of the church. Now, antiquity, boys and girls, takes us back to the study of ancient history. It takes us back to the very dawn of time itself, of human history. And where did we trace the church back to? Right away back to then. We trace the church away back into antiquity. Some Christians believe that the church only started on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. And they go as far to say that there was no visible church, recognisable church in the Old Testament times. Well, in the eternal council of God, we, we know to start off with that the church existed from all eternity. The church did not just exist from the start of time. The church existed in the great decree of God from eternity itself. Our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the very foundation of the world. God put us in the family and his decree in that great covenant of grace that he made with his son on the behalf of his people. What a, what a mystery that is when we think about the family. But in human history... I think it's proper to trace the commencement of the church, not to Pentecost, but to the Garden of Eden itself and to the aftermath of the fall of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. The word for church in the New Testament simply means an assembly of called out people. What are we today? We're just an assembly of people who have been called out of the world to worship God, to proclaim his name, to honour his day, to gather and to honour his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Definitions are important. James Bannerman has a classic work, the, the great Free Church of Scotland theologian, 
on the Church of Christ. And in that, he gives to us a fivefold description, definition of the church. Now, if we know scripturally what the definition is, what the household of God is, then we'll know what to look for in antiquity. If we don't know really what we're looking for, then we'll not know how to find it. So it's good to start off by knowing what we're looking for. And if we know what we're looking for, then we'll know how to find it way back there at the start of time. The word church, according to Bannerman, signifies the whole body of the faithful, whether in heaven or on earth. Just taking Paul's words there in Ephesians 3 verse 15, who have been or shall be spiritually united to Christ as their saviour. So this is the whole body of the faithful for whom Christ died. This great elect number of which no man can put a number on. And I'm glad today that that number is not restricted. It's not restricted geographically. It's not restricted politically. It's not restricted by colour, by country, by creed. What is referred to here is the spiritual invisible body of Christ. That incorporates the whole body of the elect and none else. And that's the household of God that Paul is speaking of here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 and chapter 3 and verse 15. Now Bannerman, let me just give you a little quote from him. He says, this society uh, which is described is marked out as having high and mysterious privileges standing in peculiar relation to Christ unseen and unknown of men. A society whose members are unreckoned and unobserved on earth, but all of whom are numbered and known in heaven. Such is the invisible church of Jesus Christ. Now you know your family. And you maybe can go to your grandparents, maybe your great-grandparents. You know all the ones that are in your immediate family. But you can't know all the ones that are in the family of God. They're only known to God himself. That great elect innumerable company. Look at our own Westminster Confession in chapter 25 reminds us about the Catholic or the universal church which is invisible and that consists of the whole number of the elect that have been or shall be gathered into one under Christ. So the question needs to be answered. There's four other descriptions there, but I know time will not permit me to look at them with you today. You, I commend them to your own study. The question needs to be answered, did such a household of faith appear in the Old Testament scriptures? If we go back to antiquity, do we see that assembly? Those people called out from the world to transact the business of God, to witness for God and his own dear son. Well, we certainly do. And if you can't see it, it's because you don't want to see it. The Old Testament saints were saved through the Christ of prophecy. They looked at the types. They looked at the prophecies. They looked at the coming of the Messiah. And they were saved through Christ, the one who was to come. There was no other saviour. The New Testament saints where we stand and are part of this dispensation of the covenant of grace. We're looking back to the Christ of history, the one who has come. But it's the same Christ. There's no two ways of salvation. There is but one way of salvation. We've often referenced that first gospel promise for you in Genesis 3 verse 15. Remember just in the aftermath of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what happened? God preached to Adam and Eve and to the devil and to all of those fallen spirits that the seed of the serpent would bruise 
the heel of the woman's seed. And that woman's seed was the predicted and the promised Messiah. And his heel would be bruised. But the serpent's head would be broken. Here we're taken to Calvary. Did Adam and Eve believe that promise? They certainly did. And I believe as a result they were taught how to be part of the household of God. Remember how they taught their family. We read about Abel. How he brought his blood sacrifice. They knew how to have peace with God. The antiquity of the church goes right back to the dawn of human history. I don't know how far you can go back in your family tree. But spiritually if you're saved today. And part of the household of God. You can go right back to the beginning. Right back to the garden of Eden itself. Now that's not to say that the Old Testament believers had the same light as those in the New Testament. Because on the day of Pentecost what did happen was that the church came to maturity. And the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, as reformed evangelical Christians, what do we believe? Well, we believe that the church in the New Testament, what is it? It's just a continuation of the church in the Old Testament. It's no different. This is the antiquity of the household. That's what Paul was teaching in Ephesians chapter 2. He reminded the Gentile believers at Ephesus of what they once were in verse 11 and in verse 12. Remember, remember. We often forget, but it's good for you and I to remember what we once were. And we reminded the Gentiles Believers at Ephesus, that they were that uncircumcision by which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. What a predicament they were in. But he reminded them what they are now. And oftentimes, you know, when I hear people give their testimony, they spend the whole time telling what they once were. What a testimony is what you are now. And I want to ask you today, what are you now? It's not what you were, it's what you are now. What are you now with God? Where are you with God today? And that's what he took up the rest of the verse 13 to verse 19, unfolding to the Ephesian believers they were now in Christ Jesus they were brought nigh by the blood of Christ through the work of Christ by the spirit of Christ they were no more strangers they were no more foreigners but they were now the, of the household of God that word for household you can look it up it just means the same as family they were strangers now they're family they were aliens now they're family they were without Christ, now they're with Christ. They're part of the family of God. And that's the same household of faith as the Old Testament dispensation. This amazing family, which by God's grace comprises the elect of all ages, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the very foundation of the world. Secondly, let me talk to you a little bit today about the accessibility into this household. How do you get into it? How do you be made part of this household of God? How do you be made part of the family? You were born into your biological family. 
How do you become part of the household of God? What gives those who are strangers access into this family, into this house? That's why we put locks on our doors. That's why we lock the door at night. Potentially to keep the stranger out. To keep those that we don't know outside. To keep uninvited guests outside. I know around more and there are many people and they don't lock their doors. I've never understood that. I was always brought up to lock my doors. But you lock the doors to keep the stranger out, the unwanted guest out. How then, in a spiritual sense, does the stranger, the alien, those that don't know Christ, how do they get into the family? How do they get into the family of God? Well, this is addressed in a wonderful way in verse 18. It says, For by him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Here's the accessibility. It's through the work of Christ. It's through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that we're admitted into the family of God. It's amazing that God would allow us into his family. That's something that staggers me from time to time. How did Ian Harris ever get into the family of God? Because he never deserved to be in the family of God. Well, the whole chapter tells us how. Verse 1 to 3 will not go back there, but it teaches us about our fallen sinful state. That's where we, that's where we were. Verse 4 to 7 teaches us about the intervention of God's grace. The buts in the Bible. But God. If it wasn't but for the grace of God, we still, we still would be in the pit of sin and no way out and no way up. Verse 8 to 10 reminds us that salvation is obtained through faith alone. By the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's all of grace. Sinners receive salvation from the gracious hand of God. But brethren and sisters we come empty handed. We come empty handed to Christ. That Christ might fill those empty hands. We sang last Sunday. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's how you get in. You don't bring your works. You come empty handed. You come bringing his work. He died for you. He died in your room and in your guilty stead. And if you haven't come empty handed in faith to Christ for mercy. Let me encourage you to come today. Right now. Because he's never turned anybody away who came empty handed. Those sinners who come empty handed. They go back with full hands. Those who come with empty cups. They come with the cup. They go back with the cup overflowing. Verse 11 to 13 reminds us. What we are now in Christ Jesus. We're made nigh by the blood of Christ. What brings us in to the family of God? It's the blood of Christ. It's the covering of the blood of Christ that brings us into the family of God. It's the work of Christ that admits us into his family. Now, there are many other passages here that remind us of this same truth. Just let me quickly read one to you. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5 to 7. Galatians 4, verse 5 to 7. It teaches us there <clears throat> about Christ is coming. Why did he come, as we read in the Catechism? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth his spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore? There no more a servant, 
but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Those are astounding verses to read and to understand. Christ came, his whole coming was to redeem. That was his work. He came to redeem, to buy us back from the slave market of sin. He came to redeem us. Why? That we might receive the adoption of sons. This word for adoption is only used by Paul in the New Testament. It's a very Pauline word. It's used five times. And it just simply means to take the stranger and to make them a son in the family of God. That's what adoption does. Adoption takes someone on the outside who biologically does not belong to the family and brings them into the inside of the family and legally they become part of the family, but not just part of the family. They become legally an heir to all that is the families. And that's what this passage is teaching us. God took us as sinners and he made us his sons, his daughters. And not only that, but he made us his heirs. His heirs. We're all heirs today. We have an inheritance that's laid up for us in heaven. So many people fall out about wills and inheritance and what's left to them and what's not left to them. There's been many arguments and family squabbles at the reading out of wills. But when we get to glory, we'll discover we're the richest people of all. Because we are an heir. We're not just a son. We are an heir with Christ to all of heaven. To all Emmanuel's land. That's what it means to be part of the family of God. The Lord Jesus addressed this very issue. In John's Gospel chapter 1 verse 12 and 13. He said as many as received him. To them give he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe in his name. The word power simply means privilege. That's a wonderful privilege. Isn't it? When God takes the stranger on the outside and he brings them and he puts them on the inside, he just doesn't even give them that legal standing to take the family name, but they even get the family inheritance. That's what God does in grace. That's what he's done for every child of God in the meeting here today. When we say there's no family like the family of God, I think that's the greatest understatement in the world. We don't really understand it, do we? Sometimes we hear people saying, I'm part of a family, I'm part of the family of God. And we all just let it wash over the top of our head. But there's no privilege, no privilege, dear brethren and sisters, like being part of God's family. No privilege. God and grace took us whilst we were on the outside. He brought us to the inside. He made us sons, not just sons, but he made us heirs. What a privilege to be part of that family. Born of the Spirit with life from above. Into God's family divine. Justified fully through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. That's what it is to be part of the family of God. Let me ask you today, are you part of that family? Are you part of God's family today? You can tell me about your biological family. Maybe you can trace your tree better than anybody else here in the gathering. And so many people, even around these parts, and rightly so, they're they're proud of their family, they're proud of their background, they're proud of their tradition. But spiritually where do you stand? 
What's your spiritual lineage today? By grace have you been put into God's family. Because it's better to be in God's family than any other family. Part of the family of God. I could say thirdly and fourthly, but I know that would take me a long, long time. But the thirdly is the authority which governs the family. Every family needs authority. And that's verse 20. Because this family, this household, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the word of God. We have no other authority in the church of Jesus Christ other than the word of God. When families have no authority in them, families fall apart. And when churches fail to exercise authority, they fall apart and they fail their, their calling. And there are many churches today that have set aside the Bible. How many churches today have no preaching in it? There will be no preaching in some churches today, evangelical churches. There will be no preaching in it. They've closed the Bible. They've set aside the authority. And they cease to be the household built upon the foundation of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. Dear brethren and sisters, whatever happens up ahead in the will of God, let us continue to build upon the foundation, the doctrinal foundation of the teachings of the apostles and prophets. It tells us here that Christ is the chief cornerstone. If you go back into the hallway, you'll see the cornerstone of this building being laid. The foundation was laid and then they put the cornerstone and the cornerstone shaped the whole building. Imagine if the men who laid that cornerstone had took the angle and had made it crooked. We not only need the foundation, but we need Christ as the cornerstone to keep us on the straight and narrow, to keep the building going up, to keep it going forward to the glory of Christ and to the glory of God. That's the authority. We don't have time to develop that. But we'll conclude by saying, fourthly, finally, what about our accountability in the household and family of God? We're part of a family, but have no accountability to it. Ask many Christians today. We're part of a family, but don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to commit. We're part of a family, but we don't want the accountability. There is a duty upon all of us in our biological families to live up to our responsibilities and to take on accountability for doing what we ought to do in the family. Children should be accountable. Mothers are accountable. Fathers are accountable. We're all accountable for our roles in the family. So there is a duty, spiritually speaking, upon every brother and sister to fulfill their role publicly in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the household of God. Do you know what that means? I'm going to summarize all of this. It means membership. It means membership. I'm glad to see so many young people here today. And let me just address it head on with you. Young people need to be in membership in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be in membership and in submission to godly oversight in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kuiper wrote again, 
It's clear that in the days of the apostles, it was the universal practice to receive believers into the visible church. We talked about the invisible earlier on. So the visible is the representation of the invisible. That's the local church. And the scriptural rule is that while membership in the church is not a prerequisite of salvation, nobody is saying that in order to be saved, you need to be a member of the church. Nobody ever said that. But it is a consequence of salvation. Do you get the difference? It's not a prerequisite to being saved. But it is a consequence of being saved. And if you're saved today, well then I believe you have to accept the accountability of publicly identifying and joining a local Bible-believing church that is built upon the authority of scriptures. That's built upon the doctrines of the apostles and the holy prophets of old. How do we uh, then fulfill our accountabilities? Well, <clears throat> John Brown of Haddington gives us some important pointers. I'll just list them to you. We're to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 and verse 3. You know, to keep a family at peace biologically, sometimes you have to hold your tongue, don't you? You just can't say, at family gatherings, you just can't say everything that you want to say. You have to keep the filters on, don't you? And at your family gatherings today, yeah, you have to keep the filters on. And in the church of Jesus Christ, it's the same. You have to endeavor to keep the bond of unity and the spirit of peace. Secondly, we're called to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 2, Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2. Bear one another's burdens. If somebody's down, we have a duty to lift them up. If somebody needs encouragement, we need to encourage them. It's often said the church of Jesus Christ is the only institution that buries its wounded. Some brother or sister is wounded. And instead of looking after them and making sure that they recover, we bury them. We bury them. Remember the story of that Good Samaritan, he took that wounded man, he took him to the inn, and he held the innkeeper responsible for looking after him until he was better. And I think that's a wonderful picture of the church itself. We have a responsibility to look after sick, spiritual people. That's our business. We're to endeavor by our words and actions. Thirdly, Romans fourteen thirteen tells us not to cause others to stumble. Don't put a stumbling block in front of others. There are things that it's okay for others to do. It's not okay for me to do. Why? Because I wouldn't want to put a, an occasion of stumbling in a brother's way. Fourthly, we're not to miss the opportunity to gather together. Don't miss it. Here we are gathered together. Here in thy name we are gathered in the name of the one who's the head of the family. We're just his children sitting around his table. We're part of his household today. Don't miss the opportunities together. And I think in closing we can say we have to be diligent to fulfill our individual <coughs> rules. We read in Romans 12 and 4, as we have many members in one body, all members are not the same office. You do things different to I do. And you'll reach people I'll never reach with. I'll reach people you'll never reach. I am asked to do things you're not asked to do, but you can do things that I couldn't do. 
And then verse 6 tells us, Romans 12, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Use the gifts. Talks then about prophecy. Talks about ministry. It talks about exhortation. It talks about giving. It talks about drilling. It talks about showing mercy. Do it and do it all with cheerfulness. That's what we're taught. And then as we conclude today, in the New Testament scriptures, you know, things were so much clearer. If you were saved, you were in Christ. If you were unsaved, you were out of Christ. Just as clear as that. And that's as clear today. It might be muddled and, uh, and muddied over today, but it's just the same. As you leave that building today, I want you to know you're either in Christ or out of Christ. If you're a Christian, in the New Testament times, there were no Christians who were not members of the church. They were, not, they were members. They were all members. Every one of them were members. And if you're not a member of a Bible-believing church today, built upon the, the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets, remedy the situation. In the name of the Lord, you remedy it. And then fulfill your responsibilities in it. What a blessing to be part of the household of faith, the family of God. May the Lord bless you all today. Don't forget Ephesians 2.19, this family day. I know so many of you will spend it together, rightly so as families. But remember Ephesians 2.19. We're part of a bigger family. We're part of the household.